0: When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This ends the reading of God's Word. That's great. Father in heaven, as we read this dark passage, we Recognize, Lord, how sobering this is and is intended to be, and we pray that we might learn the lessons here. But we pray also that You would shine the light of Christ on this text, that we may see Him standing amidst His Word, standing amidst the people of Israel, standing indeed amongst Your church, that when we forsake You, that we may find in You a forgiving God, a God of mercy and covenant faithfulness even in the face of our own foolishness and idolatries. And so, Lord, teach us, Father, from this text. Teach us to hate sin, to hate idolatry, and anything that would come between our love for You. And so we pray, bless this time to that end. In Jesus' name, Amen. Why has God left this story in the Bible? Why has God left this story and others like it that tell such dark deeds of Israel, God's people throughout history? Why, is he, why does He not clean it up, sanitize it a little bit, make it a little more um, cheerful for our reading? Well, I like what Philip Brykin says. I like how he answers that question as to why he's left these kinds of stories in the Bible. Indeed, this story. He said this in his commentary, not to tell us what happened, but to tell us what happens. What happens when we choose idols over God? God's people surrender to the temptation to worship the creature. Instead of the Creator who is blessed forever. Paul agrees with that. Paul says something similar to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You might recall what he said about this text. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. We need to hear this. We need to read these things. We need to meditate on these things. We need to hear sermons on these sorts of texts regularly. We need to remember what happens when men commit idolatry. But we also need to remember... That we have a faithful God, a faithful Savior, who is forgiving, who is gracious. And indeed, we're going to see that played out in extraordinary ways in the coming weeks. So, a little bit here before we get into the text, a little context. Just remember what's come before it, and I won't belabor all the details that we've gone over in these last several weeks about this this new creation theme. Only to say that God has in the tabernacle, in the priesthood, in the sacrifices, um, indeed, in many of the details, like the the oil and so forth, and and the uh, the work of His. Artist Bezalel in Oholiab, we see that God is, is, is telling Israel that He has given them, inaugurated in a way, a new creation for them, a way to enter back into His presence as Adam and Eve were intended to do in the beginning, a way for them to enter in through the gates, as it were, through the, through the priestly work. So vicariously through the priest, they would enter in as well by faith to dwell and to worship their God. And in a way, very interesting, just as it was in the first creation, in the creation of the world, very shortly after the creation of the world, there was a shocking fall, a shocking sin. And so it is here. As this section on the new creation uh, plan in the tabernacle has ended, chapter 31, chapter 32, we have just as we did in the beginning, a shocking fall, a shocking sin. Just as Moses is on his way down the mountain, literally on his way walking down the mountain with the commandments in his hand, the people of God, like Adam and Eve, are sinning against their Savior, against their Maker. So as we come to this text, brothers and sisters, we see that history repeats itself. It repeats itself even to this day. In the midst of God's grace and kindness and his revelation of his love, we too, just like Adam and Eve, just like Israel, we commit sin as well. Indeed, shocking sin. And so, God wants to teach us by this text. He wants this church to remember and to learn the lessons of Israel's idolatry that we might not follow in their sin and folly. There are going to be three points tonight. These points are these. Idolatry, these are the lessons. Idolatry divides. Idolatry distorts. And lastly, we'll see that idolatry degrades. Idolatry divides, distorts, and degrades. So look with me at verse 1. Idolatry divides. And it divides hearts, first and foremost. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And notice the text tells us that Moses delayed. I think that more has to do with their perception of things. Moses is right on time, Moses isn't necessarily slow. Uh, god's been uh, had something to do with that, hasn't he? He's been keeping him up there for some very important things. And uh, and the war it was worth the wait I would say uh, if if they had just been patient and waited, um, but uh, the text says that they saw that Moses delayed. They're they I guess getting a little a little impatient. But I'm not sure that it's just impatience here. You see, remember back back in, in, in Exodus chapter 19. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19 um, and then chapter 24 as well, you see, the people understood what Moses was doing. There was no mystery for them. It wasn't like they didn't know what what, what God was up to. They knew that God called Moses to come into into this glory cloud, the Shekinah glory, Uh, to enter into that cloud with him and to give him revelation that he would be passing along to them. They understood all this. In fact, chapter 19, they had seen the fire on the mountain. They had heard the thunder uh, rolling out of the clouds. They had heard the trumpet blast and they had heard the mighty divine voice of God from from the very cloud itself. They had been witnesses to all these things. You'd think they'd want to wait a little bit. They all knew why Moses was there. No, the problem with Israel was not mere impatience. The problem was that they had had changed their affections from God to other things. This was not an impatience problem. This was a heart problem. This was a love problem. This is was a respect problem. Their affections, their respect and honor for God has declined. I want you to turn with me, please, to Romans 1. In Romans 1, we have this uh, very important uh, section, that beginning in verse 18, that describes the effects of idolatry. It describes what idolatry is and what it does to us. And we, we, will, we will reference this scripture again tonight, uh, a little bit later. But just, just note with me here, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. were darkened. That, I would argue, brothers and sisters, is what has happened to Israel while Moses has been away. While Moses, the mediator, the one who represented God to them, has been away. Their hearts have been inclined to other things now. Their hearts have have been geared and focused on other things besides the true and living God. And so idolatry, brothers and sisters, I would say is the result I don't believe it's the cause. I believe idolatry is the result of a cold, divided heart. Why do we commit idolatry? Because there's a problem already existing in our hearts. Something's not right. So we see idolatry divides hearts and it divides relationships. Look with me here. The people, the text, the the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. I want you to notice this phrase here. And I don't want to rush over this. It says, the people, quote, gathered themselves together. Don't, Don't skip over that. That's very important. I want you to picture this in your mind. These little factions, these little parties, these little cliques in Israel. Forming while Moses is away. You might call these political parties. These little political factions are forming in Israel. They have their agendas. They have things they want to accomplish. And I would say that there's always a tension in the church of Jesus Christ between the prophetic and the political. Now, I do not mean to say that all political things are bad, and there are many good things that are political. Politics is not a, is not a uh, morally sinful thing. It just happens to be, what are we political for? What are we forming political parties to achieve and accomplish? But you see, the people of God is that the, the Church of Jesus Christ, just as Israel was, was not a political organization. Israel was not a political nation. They were a prophetical nation. They were a prophetic people. They were a people who were to be... They had their marching orders from what? The prophetic word of God. From the revelation of God. From the mouth of God. And so what they did, they should have done. Because God said, Thus saith the Lord, this is my commandment for you. Go and do. Here we see that this is breaking down. These political factions are forming. And they are about to reject the prophetic word of God for their own agendas. They're going to throw and cast aside the word of Yahweh so that they can accomplish their desires, you see. They have now superimposed their agenda over God's. And therein is the great sin. So again, don't hear me saying that politics are wrong. Politics are, in a way, a neutral thing. It depends on what you're political for. But the people of God are always, first and foremost, prophetic in our character, in our makeup, in our... Purpose. I hope that makes sense. So, my point is this. Israel, being accountable to prophetic authority, yet here they reject the prophetic voice. And they form a party to accomplish the will of their people. Notice what they said. They go to Aaron. They go to the high priest, who I guess is left in charge, right? He's left in charge. He's the, he's the, he's the, he's the next guy in charge in line here. And they say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. The the Hebrew here is very abrupt. Get up. Rise up. It's very rude, actually. It's very rude to speak to the high priest in this manner. It's impudent. And it seems to suggest, some commentators think Aaron may have already fallen under their sway. They seem to have no trouble going up to Aaron, the high priest, and giving him this rude command to get up. Get up. We've got work for you to do, Aaron. Seems that he may have already fallen under their sway. He may have already lost his moral courage. I give him this command. Make us gods. Wow. Is this not shocking? After all... Everything they have seen, after all the mighty wonders they have seen, after the great plagues and the strikes that God has struck down, Pharaoh and all of his armies and all of Egypt, after seeing with their own eyes all these things, make us gods that will go before us. If you think through what we have seen already in Exodus, that becomes even more shocking. Now a question, are they asking for polytheism here? Now there is some slight chance they may be asking for uh, an image of Elohim. Elohim itself is a plural name. But I suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that they are indeed suggesting that they are going to follow polytheistic practices such as the nations around them, that they want gods like their neighbors. They want strong-looking gods like their neighbors. They want gods that look impressive to the world. And there's some evidence for that in the text. In Acts chapter 7, verse 39, um, the the Scripture says that in their hearts, speaking of this event right now, that in their hearts they returned to Egypt. In their hearts they returned to Egypt. Isn't that very interesting language? And so I believe what they are doing is they are wanting gods like they have used to seen in the nations around them, such as Egypt, such as all the pantheon of, of deities in Egypt that the peoples worshipped. Gods that you could see images of. Make us gods who shall go before us. Again, this is very shocking because God had already promised that He would go before them that He would send His angel. He said, I will send My angel to go before you into the nation when you conquer the land. When I give you this great land that's flowing with milk and honey, I'll send My angel to go before you. Who is His angel? Who's the angel of the Lord, kids? We know from later in Scripture, it's Christ. I'm going to send My Savior. I'm going to send My Son, you might even say, to go before you and make a way for you. The definition of idolatry is looking to the created thing to be and do what only the true God can be or do. Looking to the creation for for what only God can be or do. This is cosmic treason. This is stunning treachery and foolishness. God has already commanded Israel to enter into the promised land. He's provided His Christ to go before them. And He's made it clear to them. And now... Now they have taken this step. Look what this text says next. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Again... This reveals something of their heart. Remember what God said about Moses. Exodus 4.16. He said, Moses, you will be God to them. And here's Israel. As for this man, Moses, we don't know what's become of him. What a loser. Can't count on Moses. This Moses, this way of speaking is disrespect. To reject Moses, so, after we've seen Exodus 4.16, to reject Moses means what? What does that imply? They're rejecting God. He's God to them. He's their Christ, you might say. He's their anointed. And so, in rejecting Moses, they're rejecting God's divine anointed mediator, God. They're rejecting Him. And so they have believed a lie. They believed a lie that they are their own gods. They, they, can, they know what's best for them. And they've gone their own way. And it's led to division. It's led to these political factions. It's led to division in the body. It's led to division here with Aaron and his brother Moses. And it leads to ultimately division between God's people and God Himself. Um, look with me at James chapter 3. I just want to follow up on this point and show you from God's word that this is this is this is so this is true idolatry divides our hearts and divides our relationships it creates division when you see churches that are full of strife and conflict and division you can be sure that there is there is idolatry deep idolatry at the heart of these things that needs to be repented of James 3 beginning of verse 13 We're going to read down to verse 10 of chapter 4. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now notice how James follows this statement. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Israel needed to hear those words that night. So we see first in this text, brothers and sisters, that idolatry leads to division in our hearts and in the body of Christ. Second thing we see in this text is that idolatry distorts Idolatry distorts. And the first thing we see that it distorts is our view of creation. It distorts our view of creation. Verse 2. And Aaron said, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, sons, and daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Some of you may have heard of a theologian named Cornelius Van Til. And uh, Cornelius Van Til uh, uh, was a a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. And he would often, uh, in his classroom before his students, uh, on the board behind him, he would draw two circles. This was sort of a famous lesson that he he taught. Two big circles. And the two circles uh, would be side by side next to each other on one hand and the other. And the one circle has God in the middle and the other has His creation. He pointed out that these two circles represent um, the, 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 the creator and his creation, and therefore we are never to worship that which is in this circle. We are always to worship this, the, the, the God who is entirely distinct to himself, entirely um, unique and unlike anything, completely unlike anything in the created order. But idolatry turns that lesson on its head. Because it tempts us to then see the things in the created order, in this circle, as worthy of worship and veneration. So here, we see that Israel, God's holy people, make the object of their veneration that which is created. Here they tell Aaron, or Aaron rather says to the people, take off the rings of gold. Now we see this focus on Gold. We see a focus on the materials God use, or that Israel uses to make their gods. Give me your gold. They trade, you might say, gold for God here. Now, notice here that this gold, is, of course, has intrinsic value. It's beautiful. It's uh, precious metal. It's still valuable to this day, of course. Uh, but now, idolatry does not have to focus on things of intrinsic value. Doesn't necessarily have to be something that's materially precious. We can make idols of anything, and we make idols more often than not of things that are good in the creation, things that are praiseworthy. In fact, things that are um, worthy of uh, worthy of um, praise. Here are six P's. These are these are the classic six P's of idolatry. Right. So you've probably heard these before. Power. Position, possessions, praise, pleasure, and people. People. We make people. We make people's um, affections, relationships, gods. But here we see gold being given as their their focus. Remember where the gold came from, by the way? The gold was the plunder that came out of Egypt. It was the gold that the people of Egypt gave to them on their way out in the Exodus. And these these treasures, these trinkets, these, these gold earrings and jewelry and so forth, were adorning their bodies. Look at the text. The text says that the people were wearing them. Interestingly, their daughters and their sons and their wives were all wearing these earrings. And they were wearing this gold jewelry on their bodies. And I don't think that this is just a historical detail. I think this is, there's some sense in it's theological because later we would find this gold being used for something else. Do you remember what it was? This gold had a purpose. God had a reason for that gold in their pockets and on their, on their bodies. It would be used to make the holy house of God. These things would become the, the golden lampstand. They would become the golden table of showbread. It would become part of the, the golden ark of the covenant. The very things they wore on their persons would be used to worship God later. And so here this gold is a way that the people of God were adorned after His redeeming work from Israel or from Egypt. And here, this gold which would be used by God for a holy purpose is being distorted and used for a wicked purpose. So idolatry, brothers and sisters, is a process by which man takes the things of God that he's created to be used for his glory. And man trades the glory of God for the glory of created things. Idolatry, you might say, is trading glory. Trading glory. And by the way, it's kind of a a bit of a reminder here that idolatry is also a process by which man is distorted himself. He is degraded himself. But we'll come to that idea in just a bit. So idolatry here, we see, uh, distorts our view and use of God's good creation. Rather than enjoying it as a gift, man turns it into a god. God. Alright, so we see that idolatry distorts our view of creation, but more importantly, it distorts our view of God. Look at verse 4. He received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a golden calf. So he took a tool and he used it to begin etching away at this lump of gold. We're not told how big the calf was could have been relatively small, but I'm suspecting it would, have, it would have been a sizable thing. But I think the point here is being made, it's being made with great skill. There's great handiwork being, being put into this. Lots of effort, artistic effort, went into making, fashioning their idol. Think about today, we think about these Hollywood movies. Great artistic skill, talent. God alone can give goes into making films that end up being idolatrous in many ways. Think about architecture. Art. Think about great, great architecture, for example. The, the Taj Mahal. Uh, the great pyramids of Egypt. They were actually great structures devoted to idolatrous religion. Astonishing skill goes into making idols. God gives the gifts, but man uses it sinfully. And here they turn this gold into amazing. (laughs) Young people, kids. They trade the glory of God for the image of a grass-eating cow. They make their God into the form of a grass-eating bovine... Why a calf? Why couldn't they have found a better animal than a cow, for crying out loud? Why couldn't they have picked a more noble creature like a soaring eagle or a, um, a mighty lion or a dolphin? I don't know, something that's more majestic and noble. Why a calf? Why a grass-eating cow? Well, there's some different thoughts about this. Why did they choose to make the image of God Look like a cow. Many think that there's a throwback to Egypt. Egypt had a a cow god, if you will. They've actually seen that. They would have seen the cow god. But probably they had seen the, the image of the Baals that were worshipped in the Canaanite nations around them many, many times. This is probably more likely, that they were wanting to be like the Canaanite nations into which they were about to enter. They were about to go into the Canaanite lands and they were supposed to, by God's command, take over that land. They were to enter into it and to conquer that land for God's glory, to make it a haven of holiness and a place where they dwelled with their God forever. And... One of their chief deities is the Baal, which took the form very often of a calf. And for the pagan nations, they chose the calf because it represented power and it represented strength and it represented virility. Power and strength and virility. And so why do they want God to go before them in the image of a cow? Think about it. Israel fashioned a God that reflected what their heart really craved. They knew they were going into the heart of these pagan nations. They knew they were going to do battle with these people. And so they wanted a God that went before them that the people would respect. They wanted a God that would make them look strong, virile, powerful. They wanted to be seen as strong, virile, powerful. And so they wanted a God who they thought could reflect that better than anything else. An invisible God? Are you kidding me? The nations aren't going to respect that. A God they can't even see? No, give us a cow. Give us a strong, virile cow. That'll prove that we're strong. They were the weakest. They were the lowliest. They were the least powerful nation on earth, called to enter into Canaan, outmatched, outnumbered. Humanly speaking, they had nothing They thought maybe, just maybe, if we have a God that looks mighty and powerful, that they'll be impressed, that they'll be afraid. And maybe they could get some glory as well. And they said, here's the text, brothers and sisters, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. How foolish! They are now attributing past salvation to this golden idol when they know that it was the invisible God, Yahweh, who saved them. Just look at how the Scriptures speak about this event. Here are just a a few. Psalm 106, verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb. They worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore He said He would destroy them. Had not Moses His chosen one stood in the breach before Him? To turn away His wrath from destroying them. We'll get to that part later. But listen to that language. It's terrible. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But My people have changed their glory. For that which does not profit... Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They rejected the fountain, then they dug a hole that could not even hold water. They are doubly damned. But for the grace of God. And then, of course, Romans 1 tells the same story. So here we see the second idea that the text is presenting to us the second lesson. One, idolatry divides our hearts, it divides our bodies, I mean, our relationships. Secondly, we see it distorts our thinking, it 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 causes, like the scriptures say in Romans 1, to our minds become our thinking to become futile and vain. That our distorts our view of creation, we exalt the created thing, and we denigrate and lower the God who made it. It distorts our view of God. And then lastly, this the third lesson that I believe this text gives to us is that idolatry degrades. Idolatry degrades. Verses 5 and 6. So look with me in your text. It degrades our worship. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So we see that the violation of the first commandment, Have no other gods before me, leads to the violation of the second commandment. That they worship in a manner that is not fitting. And the sad irony is this. Isn't this so so tragic? At the very moment that they are engaging in this idolatrous worship, Moses himself is walking down the mountain with the Word of God God in hand. He is on his way. He is on his way down, as it were. God in Moses is on his way down. The text says that Aaron saw the altar. When he saw the altar, it pleased him so much. He was so impressed with what he had made. When he saw the saw the rather the the, the golden calf, rather, when he saw it, he was so pleased. When he saw it, he built an altar before it. What's significant about building an altar? An altar is where they worshipped, where they sacrificed. God's altar, of course, was a place where the gospel was proclaimed. The good news was proclaimed, isn't it? There would be one who would take your place. There was, a, there was a sacrifice that would take your place. You deserve death. But God has made a way for you to be to vicariously be take the place of this animal. And that your sins would be punished in this creature. Pointing, of course, to the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took our place on the cross... Here, the altar is a place where blood is shed to honor this false deity. What an insult to the gospel this is. Anytime you distort God's worship, you are distorting God's gospel. God has been very careful to tell us how to worship. And it's very particular. God doesn't want you to change the blueprint for worship at all. Don't get creative with it because it's the way He preaches the gospel. You know, the medium is the message, as they say. The medium changes the way the message is communicated. God has given us the medium very carefully. We're not to change that. It's very simple. Prayer, the word preached, the fellowship of the saints and the breaking of bread. Here they mess with the blueprint. Then, even worse, to add insult to injury, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. God had already ordained seven feasts to be kept including the Sabbath day, all of which were celebrations of the gospel, celebrations of the good news that Christ came down to save us, or would come down, in their case. And then verse 6, it even gets worse. And then they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. This is a complete perversion complete perversion of the gospel. The peace offering was God saying to His people that things are right with us. Here they're taking the peace offerings and in doing so, they're actually destroying the peace between God and His people by perverting His sacrifice. In the French Revolution in 1793, in the fall, the revolutionaries thought that they would do away with the religious order of France... There was an outright war against Catholic religion in France. And so the French Revolution masterminds devised a, a new religion. They called it the Cult of Reason. And so for a time, just a few years, it didn't last long, but for a time they changed their calendar from 7 to 10 days. They changed the day of worship and they made it into a... a they called it a Festival to Reason. A festival to the cult of reason. Wherein they, they danced and frolicked in the presence of scantily clad women they called the goddess of reason. They worshipped at the altar of reason. They also worshipped things such as nature and liberty. But they absolutely did everything they could to eradicate God and the Bible from society during that time. They completely attempted to distort and change worship to reflect their true loves and their true Gods. Here, God's people do that as well, very blatantly. They try to change the worship to reflect what they truly love, which was themselves. And so when our view of God is distorted, our worship will always be degraded. We see the degradation of worship here. This is happening, it happens today, isn't it? It happens today. God's people worship in a way that exalts man. We, we, we create worship settings and environments. We create, create liturgies that exalt man, exalt our preferences, exalt our desires. Everything but God is a terrible tragedy. But it doesn't stop there. Degradation, see, it, it, it continues to flow out of this. And it doesn't just degrade our worship, you see. It degrades our very lives. You see, our lives flow out of our worship. What we do today actually impacts the other six days of the week. And so here, we're going to see this, right here, right after this. Look at the text. You see, when your worship is degraded, when your view of God is degraded and distorted, and your worship is degraded, what's going to come next? It's going to be your life. Your, Your morality. Look what happens. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now kids, you see this phrase, rose up to play? I want you to get the wrong idea here. They're not out there playing football. They're out there playing soccer or, or slip and slide or tiddlywinks. They're not playing games. They're not playing children's games here. The word that's used here to describe their playing was describing sexual immorality. They were playing in such a way that they were um, engaged in immoral deeds before the Lord. You see this in the Scriptures. Genesis chapter 26, the same word is used. Um, and you, you'll, you'll, rem- you'll probably remember this, some of you, from your King James um, reading. Genesis 26:8. you remember when um, Isaac was visiting with his, with his wife and he was, um, he was seen by the king looking out the window and it says here, this is the ESV. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. The word laughing is the same word used here. Your King James might say the word "sporting." He saw his wife sporting with his wife. Again, they weren't playing games. He was flirting romantically with her. It's used to. It's a euphemism for um, for intimacy, romantic intimacy. That is what's happening here. The people sat down to engage in sexual immorality, and this is important because. Notice the connection between idolatry and sexual immorality. We saw this in Colossians recently. In Colossians 3, verse 5, he tells us to put off the old man and the ways of the old man. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the futile thinking of man and his idolatrous ways, putting off God, leads to what? Degraded sexual deeds and thoughts. There is a very strong connection between idolatry and sexual immorality. I would say it's essential. Sexual immorality will necessarily come from idolatry. All other, many other sins will come, but sexual immorality is a key part of it. Why is that? Well, think about what the marriage bed is. God's holy purpose for sexual intimacy is a picture. Is a description. Is, is an, In nature it is a picture, if you will, of God's love for His bride. This is turning this on its head. Idolatry is the distorted flip side inverse verse of that. When the church abandons God, biblical worship declines. Sexual immorality will increase. This is... True, Throughout history. It happens here. So these are our lessons. This is a a bleak picture. It's a bleak picture if we leave it here. But I think we need to remember too, what we're going to see in this text is the grace of God in a way that we haven't seen yet, at least in the history of Israel. We're going to see that next week, God willing, when Moses, led by God, pleads for mercy and God shows mercy to His people. But for tonight... For tonight, the lessons are very, very clear. First, and I'll be brief here tonight. One, idolatry divides our hearts and our relationships. Brothers and sisters, very simply, when we find ourselves in conflicts with other people, sometimes those are, those are just in God's providence. They are people seeking to do good and they have different understandings and they're trying to come to, a, uh, come to a, a compromise or something. But there are times when we see conflicts taking place in the life of the church. Conflicts in bodies, at, at Christian churches, and they, they at the very heart of them so often are idolatry or idolatrous issues. Are there issues in your life? Are there areas in your own life that are creating division with brothers? Where we are attempting to protect our own interests, attempting to achieve our own desires, attempting to uh, obtain our own agenda. We need to search our hearts. If we're having conflict after conflict in our lives, we need to say, do I have an idol that is driving me apart from my brothers? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. Secondly, we see here, brothers and sisters, that idolatry distorts our view of the creation and its creator. Idolatry is trading glory. A person is forsaking the Lord for the things that God has made. And this will debase us. It will degrade us. G.K. Beale said this, What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. We become like the thing that we worship we become like the thing that we worship. And as he saw in Psalm 115, when you worship the idols, you become like them. You become deaf, you become blind, you become mute, you become impotent, you become weak. But the inverse is true, isn't it? When we worship and love and serve the the blessed Creator in the Lord Jesus Christ by true faith, when we're united to Him in true faith, when we're walking by His Spirit, walking by His Word, the inverse is true, isn't it? He infuses into us His power, His, His righteousness, His holiness. He works into us through His Spirit and through His Word. He works into us a godliness and a strength and a power that we would never have on our own. It is really, truly living as humanity has been called to live. We have wisdom that would never be ours on our own. We have power and strength to resist sin and say no to sin that we would never, ever have on our own. We have power to love, to humble ourselves, and to serve and give and generously pour ourselves out for others that we would never have on our own. When we are walking with Jesus, there's freedom and love and life with Him. And so when we commit idolatry, brothers and sisters, we're pursuing our own glory from a heart of pride. Often the things that we are proud of are our idols. And they're not always bad things. Often they're good things that we love too much. May I just share a few of them? Someone said, Pride is the only sin that grows in the good soil of our hearts. Sometimes we wish to have good things and love them too much. Riches. Position, praise, relationships, power, authority. There are many things that can be tied to these. Family, callings, our appearance, our intelligence, our knowledge, our performances. could be many things. Our parenting, our leadership. could be many things. But you see, it's, we're putting ourselves before Christ. These are all gifts that God gives us to be used for His glory. We must never exalt the creature over the Creator. And then, lastly, brothers and sisters, and, and finally, idolatry will degrade. Flee sexual immorality, the Bible says. If you find yourself being tempted to commit sexual sin, you have an idol. When you know in your conscience that you're going places in your mind, you're going places online, you're going places on the internet, you're going places physically or hanging with people that you know that you should not or doing things you know you should not, God is telling you, He's screaming to you, you have an idol, you need to repent. You are putting the flesh before the Creator God. He gave sexuality, He gave these relationships as a gift in the context of marriage between one man and one woman for life. And they are a blessing in that context. It's like fire in the fireplace. It's a blessing. But when it gets onto the carpet of the living room, it stops becoming a blessing. Brothers and sisters, if you have sexual immorality, repent of idolatry. Flee. Because what you're finding is your heart has some serious deep fissures and cracks. And that you need, those, you need your heart to be restored to Christ. And then you'll find all these things in their proper place. a blessing. But they won't become your God and they, you won't pursue the flesh over the Spirit. So brothers and sisters, may we be spared of suppressing the truth of God and trading His glory. May we honor the Creator over His creation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for this text. Though it is sobering and it is serious and it is in so many ways troubling. We thank You, Father, that we know that there is light behind the darkness and the light overshadows the darkness and always wins. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that Your light shines in the Gospel so very brightly in the Word and that You remind us that You are gracious and You will forgive idolaters such as us. And You have done so and You will continue to do so. And for that, we are so thankful. We love You, Lord Jesus.